Hello there, and thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and I've got one other with me in the studio, and we're going to be talking about the importance of art. And I'll go ahead and let Brother John introduce himself. Hello, my name is John Mills. I'm glad to be with you today. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the importance of art in our world. Brother John gave a great Sunday School lesson yesterday looking at the restoration from exile. And I'm going to ask if he would to go ahead and open us up in prayer as we begin our conversation today. Let's bow our heads. Our Lord, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for all of your blessings to us. We thank you that we can come together today and to discuss uh, your word and, and the things of God. And we just ask that you would bless this and use it for your glory in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the role that art plays in our world and particularly the importance of having the biblical stories implemented deeply in the psyche of our culture. If we want to be a people of God, a people of holiness, we as individuals, we must aspire toward the, towards the great stories of, of Scripture which have come down to us. So, Brother John, I want to open up by presenting you with a proposition uh, regarding a definition for art and beauty. A lot of times we're told that these things, they're too intangible to be able to define or something like that. But I actually have a working definition for both art and beauty. And I'm going to share those with you and just get your thoughts. So for the first of those two, art, I have defined art for several years now as the portrayal of a truth. And I arrived at that definition after reading through, I believe, Plato's... One of the works of Plato, I think it was Ion, Plato's Ion. I was reading through that, and I, I come to this point where I realized that art is really just the portrayal of a truth, whether you're making a sculpture, a painting, music, and even something like music is reaching towards the truths of chords and things of that nature. And so beauty, the second definition there, is the approximation to a truth. In other words, the closer you are to a given truth of God's creation, the more beautiful it tends to be. Again, the better someone is able to play music that fits within those chord structures, the more we tend to like that. And the same goes with other things in life. So what are, you, what are your thoughts initially on those definitions, just throwing that out there? Well, I, I can see where you're going with that. You know, the, the idea of art expressing truth, you know, I certainly think that is, is the role of the artist is to reveal truth to us. Uh, in a way that we've never thought about before or a way we've never seen before. And so, you know, I think great art does that. And when we see it, we may not be able to articulate, you know, the truth exactly, but we sense that there's a truth there. And the same thing for beauty. You know, it, most of us have a hard time defining what exactly beauty is, but we recognize beauty when we see it. And I think, like what you said, I think God put a spirit within us, a spirit of truth, and that uh, calls out to us. It allows us to recognize, to recognize beauty. How important do you think art and beauty are to God? If I could just throw that out there as well. Well, yeah, you've got to think that they're they're pretty important. I mean, when you see, when you see the way that God designed this world, and to make it with such beauty, you know, when He didn't have to. You know, when the world could have functioned in, in a lot of other ways. Uh, so I, I think beauty is important to God. And one of the things that's always struck me is, you know, some of the, the communist countries that deliberately excluded God, they lost so much beauty in the process. Oh, yeah. And, you know, their buildings, their cityscapes, yeah. all of this became 
kind of so drab, you know. So much concrete. And, and so it's, I, I think beauty is important to God because of the way he created this world. I, I completely agree with you. And the reason why I want us to have this conversation is art is a very effective way of teaching people a belief system. And it's one of the ways you brought up the communists, how they got God out of those schools, how they got God out of the, the culture, and they replaced it with something else by removing the beauty. And also we see that it's very effective in teaching young people to buy into the belief system of the culture, the belief system of the world. I want to go now to Psalms 137.6. This was a scripture you used yesterday where it says, May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. You know, Jerusalem is is obviously a symbol for God's presence and God's revelation. But a lot of times people, they'll look at the ancient world and they'll say, well, something like Athens, it's a symbol for philosophy and logic. And then Jerusalem is the symbol there for divine revelation and morality. But I want us to to kind of push the envelope a little bit. Maybe we're not pushing the envelope at all. Maybe we're just actually opening it up and looking in it. Um, we'll discover that in this conversation. But I think Jerusalem is also a symbol for God's beauty. And God's interest in having aspirations, things that are noble. If you look there in Philippians 4.8, that list of things, all that is true, that which is honorable, that which is of just, of justice, um, purity, beauty, matters of good report, and whatever is virtuous and worthy of praise. I think you can easily make a case that God, when calling people to Jerusalem, was giving them a symbol for all of that, those higher aspirational things. So what are what are your thoughts on on that when we look at Jerusalem? Is that is that fair to characterize Jerusalem that way? Well, I, I can see that. You know, uh, a lot of times when they wrote about Jerusalem, when the psalmist described Jerusalem, they described it, you know, in terms of great beauty and, and the beauty that they, they saw there. And it wasn't strictly because of the physical aspects of Jerusalem, but because you know, Jerusalem was beautiful because it had the Spirit of God yeah. there. It was God's city. And so I think that Jerusalem symbolizes that very much. And when you get into the New Testament and the idea that there's going to be a new Jerusalem, and, you know, when it's described in the beauty and the grandeur of it. So I, I think that gives you some idea. Well, just building off that a little bit, I think you're absolutely right. The transcendental spiritual qualities, they are... If you can imagine this as at a waterfall, they're at the top. They're what give the real meaning and substance to Jerusalem. And when you have that up at the top, I think you do find beautiful things that come subservient to that flow. You have beautiful architecture. You have beautiful um, stories that are told to one another. You have something that is aspirational there. Do you think what, – what any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would agree, you know, that it starts with that, with that idea of of truth and beauty at the top and art and beauty coming from that. You know, going back to the idea of, you know, the communist countries, you know, they had all of this art and a lot of it was pure propaganda. Yeah. And it was some of the ugliest or some of the, how do you want to say, some of the most faked art. When yes. you looked at it, yeah. there was nothing beautiful or true about it because it wasn't based on anything true. You and know. It's spooky to look at a lot of that art. Yeah. There's something about it which really was spooky. Um, speaking of, of Russia, let's go to Russia and talk a little bit about a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky. Many of you may have had to read Crime and Punishment at some point in time in your life. Um, if so, mercy be to you because that's a long book. Um, but anyways, regardless of that, 
he took and kind of flipped all of this. And I don't know that he was necessarily trying to tear down the world or as he was just a product of the world around him or just putting his finger on the pulse. But Dostoevsky made the statement. He said, at first, art imitated life, which is what John and I have been talking about. It's up. There's the top of the waterfall. There's the truth of God's creation, which does have God and his aspirations up there. But then there's a shift, and Dostoevsky characterized this. He says, at first, art imitated life, and then life began to imitate art. And finally, life began to find its very meaning in the arts. And now when this quote, you look at in the world how this plays out, you eventually get someone like Oscar Wilde who comes along and totally changes things up. And he says, the true purpose of art is to lie, to tell of beautiful, untrue things. That is the proper aim of art. Now, obviously, Oscar Wilde would define beauty differently than I have. Um, but there was a shift in the world that happened in the 19th century where instead of using art for purposes that were good and noble, there was this push to say, why don't we tell of beautiful untrue things? And that's where you start getting propaganda come along. You start getting, seeing really some, some wicked things and also a lot of just ugly, ugly art, ugly buildings, ugly architecture, ugly music. If you want to know the truth, um, you get things like, uh, the Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, but all of this came from a hatred of the truth and the truth of God's creation. Your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I I, I understand what you're saying. And you know, you were when you were talking about ugly art and coming from you know the reasons of the art. You know, you see it not only in the propaganda of, of some of those communist countries, but you know, in a lot of our advertising today. You know, where the purpose. They've made what sh should be art, what looks good, but it's there merely to sell something. Yeah. And there's no truth behind it. Yeah. And we've gotten so used to this idea of just kind of a glittering uh, facade on the outside, and we don't expect anything deeper. You know, basically, we expect to be lied to. Yeah. And that that is, you know, just changes everything. Oh, it does. And there really are consequences to this. And you mentioned yesterday in your Sunday school lesson that we we like stories they shape who we are and you've got to recognize when the chicken comes home to roost there are consequences to training whole generations that art things of beauty it doesn't have any real substance behind it and i think that's one of the reasons why our world has gotten so fragile it's gotten so easily disrupted as it is today is we don't have those firm truths to hold on to we've been so far separated from the biblical stories that that we are easy prey for something to be served up. You know, the communists realized that the propaganda, even though it was ugly, and to be honest, a lot of it is kind of creepy to look at, but they also realized that it demoralized the people. It separated them from the truth. It, it put a barrier up where people didn't have eyes and ears for truth and beauty anymore. Yeah. When we leave out, when we leave out truth, we lose beauty, but yeah, yeah the effects of it upon us, you know, when you leave out the idea of truth, then you get into you know, this very real cynicism. And, you know, it's not just that the truth's not there, but you're a fool if you're looking for truth. Yeah. And, you know, and you can see where that kind of leads you. Yeah, well, we're definitely in a culture right now that says your truth, you do you. And it's become very socially taboo to be somebody who it holds to an absolute truth. You know, even within the art that's made now, you see villains and things being portrayed as they're the ones who like absolute truth. Um, you see that even in Star Wars or something like that, where they say only a Sith deals in absolutes, which is funny because that's an absolute statement itself, but whatever. But you get this sentiment where it's become socially unacceptable to pursue the truth, kind of what you're saying there.
And that has a huge effect on our young people um, because our young people are being worked over by a false belief system. Um, and as you said yesterday, people get comfortable in exile and young people, they get comfortable in the world stories rather than the biblical stories. And there is so much beauty in the biblical stories. We as Christians, we need to really appreciate the value of putting out beautiful renditions. And even if we're not just doing like a movie adaptation of Moses or something like that, but you do find that many of the great stories in our culture, even if they're not a biblical story, they're built on the biblical stories. In other words, you have something like the Lion King, which is heavily influenced by the story of Moses. Even though it's not the story of Moses, yeah. it's still heavily influenced this this kind of somewhat prince of of you know the lion pride he goes out and then he has to return to deliver his people from a tyrant you see there's elements of the biblical stories that have really shaped what is good so john you mentioned well let me just let you respond to that how our young people are being shifted and then i'll i'll ask you a little bit what your favorite stories are and their biblical connections well uh, yeah you I understand what you're saying about uh, you know young people and the idea um, that they're they're losing the stories that are in the Bible. They're losing that background. Yeah. You know, it used to be just taken for granted that a well-educated person knew the Bible and they knew the stories of the Bible and they knew what you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, but that that biblical literacy has gone has gone by the wayside and not only has a great spiritual effect on us, but it has a great cultural effect on oh, us absolutely. as well that we no longer have that available to us. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, I was, I was uh, reading an article by a guy who was studying the great books at uh, university of Chicago, I believe. But anyway, part of those great books was the old Testament, you know, because yeah. they recognized that you needed to be familiar and they weren't saying that you need to be familiar because you were a Christian. They were simply saying, yeah. you know, any normal educated person needed to know those stories because they make up such a big part of who we yeah. are as a people. Yeah, and now there's been a shift where you see people almost ridiculed if they know the biblical stories in the public sphere. Um, I saw, and this was an online newspaper, it was like BuzzFeed or something, where they, they have their yearly reading list and they had deliberately not included the Bible on there. And then of course, you know, this is a, a, it's a spiritual move, what they're doing. They, they put a little footnote on there that says, you know, the Bible's not that good, not worth your time. And this is just people being proudly degenerate reprobates and shaking their fist at God. Um, if you weren't actively trying to shake your fist at God, you wouldn't put that little footnote in your list. And it may have not been Buzzfeed who put that out. It may have been GQ. I can't remember who it was who did that. Um, so y'all don't quote me on that, but, um, it is something which had happened recently. Um, so, John, many of the great stories are built on the biblical stories. And I know you mentioned yesterday how we have our favorite movies and books, and I thought it would be interesting just to find out, <laughs> do you have a favorite movie and book, and is there any theological connection they have to the Holy Scriptures? Well, you put me on the spot. I, I can't really think, you know, in specifics about a specific movie or book. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times you can, and uh, I I am a big fan of of mystery stories or thriller stories, uh, you know, and that that certainly is biblically based with the idea that you know you reap what you sow. Oh yeah, and that you know we start out thinking it's going to be this way and we're going to get away with it, and then of course in most of the stories you never do get away with it. Yeah, you know, 
the chickens come home to roost, as you say. Well, yeah, there's a good mystery story. And just to throw out some names of one, something like Agatha Christie's ABC Murders um, or something, you know, insert a Poirot story there, um, something like Murder on the Orient Express. There is some biblical elements in there that there is divine justice and accountability, especially with Murder on the Orient Express, to give a spoiler for that. Have you ever read that, John? Yeah, a long time ago. A long time ago. Well, in the end, um, when everybody is guilty, you know, um, Hercule Poirot, the detective, he just kind of has to, in the end, say, well, this is up to God. Mm -hmm. I I can't solve anything here, even though I've solved the mystery, but the resolution, it belongs to God. And there is that built into the story. And that's something we have to deal with in real life a lot of times. That's a very, yeah, that's a very human reality where you do have to sometimes hand things over to God. Um, Well, I wanted to share with you a few of my favorite books and movies and see what your thoughts on this. Um, My favorite movie, which is based on a book, is Fantastic Mr. Fox which a lot of people haven't even heard of this. It came out um, a few years ago, I think 2009. It uses uh, stop-motion animation. But it's really the question that a fox has. He says, you know, why is a fox a fox? And you do find throughout Scripture, you find people like Jonah, like, why am I here? Why, why? This whole fourth chapter of the book of Jonah is Jonah's existential dilemma he has. You know, why am I mad? And God's asking me all these questions. Do you do well to be angry? That's basically the plot. A fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, why Why are you a thief? Why are you doing these things? And it's even Nebuchadnezzar's question he has on the rooftop. And you find throughout the scriptures people having this question, but yet there is some divine spark that is within us being created in the image of God where we're in conflict with the sin nature, the carnal nature, and the desire to do things that are sinful, but yet God wants to call us to something higher than that. You don't just give in to your impulse to be a thief. You have to instead choose to give in to your impulse to be a good father, a good husband, that sort of thing. Um, And of course, my favorite book, um, fictional book, is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Mm. I don't know. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't. Oh, my. It's a really good book. Well, I take that back. I read the comic book version. Oh, there's a comic book version of that? Do you remember the great illustrated classics for kids? Yeah, yeah, They would do all of those in, in like, comic book form. So I did read that one, but not the real one. (laughs) You know, I'm going to have to check that out. Um, That would actually be really cool. But the whole premise in that Mm -hmm. book is... And it outright says this almost a few times. Uh, Captain Nemo, who's kind of the, he's not really a villain. A lot of times people make him out to be a villain. But he's just somebody who has rejected the inherent status you have as a man created by God as a terrestrial being. He wants to be a sea creature rather than a um, you know land creature. And he's constructed his submarine and all of that. But his rejection of the inherent loyalty we have to God and God's design is contrasted by Kanse, who is a professor's assistant in the book, and he has great loyalty to his master, even to the point where it is almost an element of faith in it, where when his master falls into the sea and his master is doomed to die, um, he turns around to find Kanse in the sea with him, and he says, well, why are you here? And he says, well, you know, if if the master falls into the sea, then so does Kanse. Um, There's another time where Captain Nemo sends him out to, to fight sharks with knives while wearing scuba gear, and Kanse is very nervous about this, and he doesn't want to do it. But Professor Aranak says, well, you know, are you going to go with me? And he says, if the master is to fight the sharks, then I am too. And um, there's an element of faith that's found there that says when you trust in the master um, and you have loyalty to the master, it does work out for you in the end. You might have to fight a few sharks. You might find yourself destitute out in the middle of the ocean. But in the end, the hand of providence is with you. And Jules Verne writes a lot about providence and how it is important to be loyal to the innate calling we have just as men and women created in the image of God. 
And when you're contrasted to that with someone like Captain Nemo, who has outright rejected that inherent loyalty, um, there is turmoil, there is chaos. He's not a villain per se, but he's really just the conflicted individual that we all are. Um, so anyways, uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I did have a, another question for you, but I'll let you respond if you want to. to. No, I don't think. Okay. Um, well, the, the last question I want us to talk about is there is a notion that is sold to young people. And I mean, it's just injected right into their veins that says old stories aren't relevant because they could not imagine the technology and situations of the world today. I don't know if you've ever heard this being said. I hear it said all the time. People use it to write off scripture. They use it to write off. Really, they use it to write off artistic things, too. I've seen people use it to write off old old movies and stuff and say, well, you know, they can't imagine today. They're irrelevant. What is your thought on that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. We are so, you know, in love with technology and some of these things that we don't realize, uh, you know, we don't we don't value necessarily things that are older. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, but he talks about this, how we have this prejudice against uh, ideas that are older, books that are older, whatever, we feel like they're not worth as much. You know, we, you look back at the people and you think of the people in Bible times or whatever, and a lot of times we think, well, you know, they were just very stupid people. They didn't realize, of course, they were people just like us. They were people just as smart as us. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I, I understand. And I think a big part of it is technology. You know, we've been sold this idea that technology is going to be our savior and technology is hugely important. And, you know, right now with this coronavirus and the kids in school, and I hate to say it, but I don't think there's any way in the world a kid is going to learn as much through a tablet as they do sitting in a classroom. No, you think, and you know, and so I, I think we're kind of painting ourselves in a corner when we're emphasizing the technology so much and we're willing to give up on the classrooms to get the technology. But it goes back to this idea that you were talking about, how, you know, we see everything newer as much better. We, we tend to do that. How, I think we're doing a, a huge mistake when we do that. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to the biblical stories. People wanting to write off scripture saying, well, it couldn't be relevant today. My, the older I get, the more I realize that, no, I don't mm. care how far you go back in scripture. People behave the exact same. They use the same arguments. They use the same, you know, justifications for things that are wicked. And God's, you know, he is unchanging. Yeah. Um, God's mentality and God's response to a lot of this is is uni- pretty uniform. Um, I mean, we do find the fulfillment of the law and we find things unfold. But God has not changed what is moral and immoral. God did not said, well, you know, this used to be a sin, but now that you've got a smartphone in your hand, it's not a sin anymore. Um, I, I didn't realize it could be that easy for you to do. So now it's not a sin. Um, and I think we are missing out and our young people are missing out on big treasures using a really, really uh, weak justification to write stuff off. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I yeah. would agree. Well, we'll end there. Um, Brother John, would you close us out in prayer as we wrap up this conversation? Dear Heavenly Father, we do uh, come before you today uh, in awe and amazement, Lord, at who you are and at how you work in this world, and especially at the beauty and the truth that you've made a part of this world, uh, just as an inerrant part of your creation, and that you enable us to see this, that your Spirit reveals it to us. We thank you, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to recognize uh, this truth and beauty in your name. Amen. Amen.
And I love how you said there, beauty, it is an inherent part of God's creation. And we as the church, we do well to recognize that and appreciate mm-hmm. that. And we should not concede our institutions of beauty and art to people who just want to shake their fist mm-hmm. at God. So on that note, God love you and have a blessed day.